0: IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello, everyone, and welcome to IndieCast. On this show, we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode, we talk about the Arctic Monkeys, problematic robot rappers, and Rolling Stone ditching its star rating for reviews. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. He's as excited to make fun of Harry Styles as I am. Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Yeah, shifting from the 1975
1: to Harry Styles. We are doing the most indie of the indie cast. <laughs> but, uh,
0: I, but but making fun of Harry Styles, oh, I think, is pretty indie oh, rock. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. That's very indie rock. Yeah. Which we're going to do <laughs> this week. Because there's there was a story that came out about him. as was a Rolling Stone cover story. It was a global... Cover story I, because they have editions all over the world. And uh I want to talk about this story just because I feel like there's a backlash brewing against this guy, and I'm excited because I feel like it's overdue. Uh yeah, I think that
1: um I, I guess like in some ways like the music Twitter backlash is really the only like th- it's really the only response we can get to like these just uh intractable pop stars, but you know this article that you mentioned. Um, my favorite detail about the bunch is that it talks about how he showers after his shows, and it's presented <laughs> right, as exactly. this like magical spiritual journey. Now, like I mean, I only shower before work, so I guess Harry Styles is upending you know traditional <laughs> ideas of masculinity. See, I'm with
0: Styles. I like to shower after after uh, you know he's on stage at Madison Square Garden. I'm in my office. Writing uh, about albums, but I like to shower at the end of the day just to remind myself that I'm a human being. <laughs> I have to wash off, like I said before, the salt mines of <laughs> the music writing world. So I'm with Harry Styles, but you, but you, you're a pre-work shower, pre pre-work, pre-work shower guy, and
1: you know I think we just have to point out to our our listeners who haven't read this article or have seen the backlash, like this is indicative of. You know, not just this writer, but like I think every single Harry Styles profile, and we've talked about this in previous episodes, it's like a writer trying to principal Skinner these nothing burgers into an unforgettable luncheon. You know, like when you interview someone of that level, you know, as a writer, it's tough because like on the one hand, this is like the biggest byline you've ever gotten. And secondly, it's somebody who's not going to give you anything remotely interesting to talk about. So you kind of have to take whatever you can and inflate that to be, oh, this is the reason it's a cover story. The closest I can relate is when I interviewed Beck for NME. It, it, it was like in the Capitol Records building, two publicists was with us. Just unfathomably dull. And I just remember like trying to seize upon anything remotely interesting to uh inflate into like a foundational
0: part of the story yes like like beck is picking at his vegetable plate (laughs) in much the same way that he picked at different styles of music in the 1990s like that's the guy you have to write where was that in 2014 that was genius fuck see but yeah any little detail about like what they're eating has to be extrapolated into like a deep comment about their life and career because yeah you don't have much time uh these people are very stage managed so the situation is set up for them not to do anything interesting because if it's interesting it might lead to a backlash and i'll say like with this article i don't want to overstate it a lot of people love this article obviously harry styles is a very popular singer very active fan community but i did get some enjoyment from pockets of the internet that were upset about this article and were two pockets in particular that were uh, entertaining for me one was michael jackson fans got mad (laughs) at harry styles because on the british edition of rolling stone the uh, cover called him the new king of pop hold on one second does that mean like in america
1: the american version or like the uh, thai version or the south african version it says something else on the cover
0: I think so. I think it was only in the UK where he was called the new king of pop. I I, in America, I'm pretty sure they said something else. That's very UK press to be like the like. That's very NME to just
1: say like to be like
0: overstated. (laughs) Well, in England, you know, they have the well. I guess they don't have a king; they have a queen. I guess here we would call him like the president of pop. That or, sounds so lame. <laughs> the, the secretary of state of pop, you know, that's cause that's, we, we don't believe in royalty in this country. Um, I mean, Michael Jackson gave himself that title, the king of pop. I think he started calling himself that around like the history era in the mid nineties. So it was part of the marketing for that album. And on the, on the cover of that album, there's like a towering statue of <laughs> yes. Michael Jackson. So he was really feeling regal, At that point, I think that was after his first trial, too, for uh, child molestation charges. But anyway, that aside, there were Michael Jackson fans upset, which was funny, but even funnier for me like some of the funniest tweets I read this week were from members of the online gay community who were dragging Harry Styles because there's a quote in that story where he's talking about one of his upcoming films and there's a gay relationship in the film and he was saying that. gay sex scenes in most films are just about two guys going at it and they don't account for the tenderness of these relationships and there are all these people in the online gay community quote tweeting this and saying why is this guy talking about <laughs> the right way to do uh you know gay sex scenes and i think that quote was taken out of context to be Almost fair certainly, yeah you know so that was a little unfair but i do think it's interesting with harry styles that in all these articles that have been written about him and i think including the most recent one he's very coy about his sexuality like he doesn't put a label on himself and i think the generous way to read that would be to say like this is a progressive standpoint you know he doesn't believe in labels or like a sexual binary type thing sexuality is fluid all that stuff i think the more cynical way and perhaps more accurate way to read that is that Harry Styles is in the closet, but in the closet as just another vanilla heterosexual dude. <laughs> because like, like if you look, I, I went researching on page six of the New York post uh, for this. They, they ran a list I think last year of his ex girl his exes going back to 2011. And like, they're all models and actresses. For the most part. And that includes like Taylor Swift is in there, Kendall Jenner, and a bunch of other women. Of course, he's currently dating Olivia Wilde. And look, maybe he has other relationships in his private life that aren't public and we don't know about them. I'm not judging that. I'm not judging him for dating actresses and models. I mean, he's a charismatic, good-looking pop star. Hats off to you. Mm. But, you know, you and I are both vanilla heterosexual dudes. And I think that the vanilla heterosexual dude community could use some positive representation. So why can't Harry Styles come out and say, I'm another vanilla heterosexual dude. I stand with my vanilla brothers publicly, shoulder to shoulder. I think that would be a good move on his part. Uh, But no, he's not doing that for whatever reason. Uh, and I don't want to speculate on that too much. I mean, maybe because it is a vanilla thing to be. It's not as interesting, perhaps. I don't know. I don't want to speculate too much. I mean, do you want to speculate on that?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's about time someone represented for us vanilla heterosexual guys. We could use it. No, I'm just playing. But um, I think that... Uh, You're there is a great my favorite quote of his like when you say like playing coy about his sexuality and every single article is like Harry Styles opens up he says some sometimes people say you've only publicly been with women. And I don't think I've publicly been with anyone. If someone chooses to take a picture with you as someone, that doesn't mean you're choosing to have a public relationship or something. What, a, you know, like this man should go to law school or something. That is just <laughs> such a incredible non-answer. But, um, yeah. I, 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 you know, I think that Lost in the attempt to present Harry Styles as this kind of progressive modernist ideal of the male pop star, um, it... it Part of that, I think, is to be coy about sexuality, not be a vanilla, hetero, white guy. But at the same time, I think the thing that actually does make Harry Styles uh, such a twenty twenty pop star is like that guilt or that feeling that being who he is isn't enough, and so you kind of have to, you know, talk yourself up and be more interesting. And look, you know, maybe he, whatever he's doing behind closed doors, again, not you know, not my concern. Go for it, but. Yeah, it's it just, just I just can't. I'm just more interested in the credulousness of the writing community around it.
0: Like, yeah, I mean, to me, it's just another example of projection with him. Like, people are projecting certain qualities onto him that I don't think are necessarily in the substance of his art or his persona. All that stuff. It it is a little confounding uh, with him, and I wonder. It seems like more people are getting annoyed with that (laughs) and which i think is i welcome that because i i do think that that's the proper reaction to him at the same time he does have the song of the summer as it was that song's hugely popular he's not going to be going anywhere anytime soon so if we make fun of him on this show which we will do again i'm sure he can take it he'll be all right what i'm hoping
1: for is that like you can tell piece by piece inch by inch with every one of these articles he is coming so close to saying something interesting and like that we'll see that might actually like alter his career so um you know keep these keep these profiles coming i want to see harry styles continue to open up
0: yeah i mean I, i would love to see an article where he just comes out and says that my sexual preference is to date really beautiful models that is what i am into And I'm proud to say it. I think if he said that, I would actually, I would laugh and I would enjoy that. I don't think that's going to happen. But I think that would be a true revelatory statement (laughs) on his part. Um, Let's get to our mailbag segment here. And thank you all again for writing in. And we love hearing from our listeners. If you want to hit us up at IndyCastMailbag at gmail.com, that would be great. Uh, I'm going to read this letter because it's pretty much just directed at you, Ian. And I don't know how much I'm going to have to say about this. So you're going to have the floor, I think, with this letter. Um, But it comes from a guy named Michael. He's in Milwaukee, a former town that I lived in. So great to hear the Milwaukee IndieCast fans coming out. Um, This is what uh, Michael writes. He says, hey, guys, this question is for Ian in particular. It's August, and I've only heard one great emo album this year. Little Greenhouse from the band Anxious. I'm sure I'm missing stuff, but I try to keep up with the genre, and it seems like a major letdown here for emo. Are we seeing a shift away from this current wave of emo? Or is it just that a lot of bands released albums in the last two years, so, so there are fewer releases in 2022? Could this be one of the impacts of COVID catching up on us, with the toll it took on up-and-coming DIY bands? I'm curious for your thoughts about Emo in 2022, and that's for Michael in Milwaukee. So he is teeing you up, Ian, to give a State of the Union address here.
1: Indeed. Uh, Na- 99% of the time, someone named Michael from Milwaukee is probably going to be asking a Steve question, but here
0: we are. <laughs> <laughs> here you go, man. So what do you think? Is this a down year for Emo? Do you agree with Michael's assessment of uh, where the scene is at at this place in time?
1: I have to be careful in so many of the things that we've discussed about 2022 to not conflate my personal malaise with greater cultural trends, but I can't help but think that Michael is onto something Um, because, you know, if there is only one Great Emo album this year, and I do think it's a down year, it's probably Anxious. They seem like a band that's gotten, you know, a decent amount of traction. You saw them on these half-year album... Like, half year, like albums of the half year list. Like that tends to be the token one. Um, and I'd also like put Pool Kids in there as making a great emo album. It might actually be the greatest of the bunch. Um, but I do think that we are in a bit of a transitional phase where 2021 brought a lot of exciting fifth wave bands. Like bands that like kind of broke through on a very small level. Um, you know, like Home Is Where, um, Hey I Love You. Uh, bands of that nature and you know they're probably working on their follow-up right now likewise in 2021 we had the the still active big names of fourth wave like foxing and the world's a beautiful place they released their album so it does feel like a down year in that like nothing from either of those waves have come out uh with something big and similarly Uh, there are a lot of really good emo albums that I just haven't written about for any number of reasons. Maybe there just isn't as much interest in publishing or they just don't haven't gotten like the sort of, um, momentum that they might've gotten from touring over the previous two years, like Carly Cosgrove or forests, you know, the, the Prince daddy album, I think was better than any of the ones that came out before. And doesn't feel like it's gotten the same impact, same with short fictions, Um, So I definitely think this is a long tail uh, result of COVID. Uh, That being said, every time I do feel this way, like, ah, nothing's popping in emo, like something comes out of the blue to really uh, just shift the narrative. I'm thinking about uh, bands like Your Arms Are My Cocoon and Weather Day, like the real fifth wave, totally online type of bands who I've been hearing great things about their live sets. When they release their follow-ups, I think those could be landmarks still waiting on the second glass beach album i know home is where and asleep but still in bed or sorry it's awake but still in bed are working on their next record so i mean i think that could change but i also have to say that like if it almost feels like a down year for everything that isn't like big you know like i think that we're gonna look at this year and like rosalia beyonce and uh big thief And Bad Bunny are going to like sweep all the top four, and it's just going to be weird
0: stuff going on in the 30s and 40s. Yeah, you know, this year got off to such a hot start, and now the last, basically the summer months have been kind of dry. I mean, it feels like it's been a while since there was a really great record. I guess Beyonce, that would be a record that came out this summer that a lot of people agree on. Not so much in our world here, but like obviously a really big record. Um... I'll just speak as someone who tends to get into these albums if they cross over from the scene, you know, cause you're deep, you're enmeshed in the scene here. I'm more of like outside of it, but I'm open to hearing bands that break out and I'll say the pool kids record is one of my favorite albums of the year. I think that's a really good record. I like the anxious record. It wouldn't have made. It didn't make my half-year list, but I, I enjoy that album. But certainly, Pool Kids I think is a really good band. Um, and w- this is the fifth wave we're on right now. Uh, fifth. I want to say it's like five point five.
1: Maybe. It, it, how long has this wave been going? <laughs> I, don't, I don't. I don't even fucking know. I think we're still fifth wave here until like the second home is where album drops. I can say that we're probably still firmly within fifth wave.
0: So. And fifth wave is like about 10
1: years? I would say fifth wave is like 2018. Like, oh, okay. Uh, I put the, the, the implosion of tiny engines maybe as the end of fourth wave in the beginning
0: of fifth ah, wave. Ah, okay. All right. So we're not that deep into fifth wave then, right? I mean, we're only like yet. four years? Okay. Yeah. So, you know, we're not going to. So you're not declaring it dead yet. You're saying you're taking a wait and see attitude. Low tide. Low tide of the fifth wave. Low tide. Wave. All right. Well, I, you know, I felt like Nancy Pelosi sitting behind Joe Biden while you were talking there. You were you were you were given the State of the Union address, and I was like, okay, do I stand? Is this an applause line? You know, here, you know, I was I was really appreciating uh, you you uh, talk about that. Um, let's get into our list of topics for this week, and we're going to start by talking about the new Arctic Monkeys album. It was announced this week. It's called The Car. It comes out October 21st. This is the first Arctic Monkeys record since Tranquility Base Hotel and Casino, which came out in 2018. I'm a big fan of that record. I feel like I know how you feel about it, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, Arctic Monkeys are a band that certainly have a big following, I think, here in America. Even bigger in Europe. If you look at their streaming numbers, they are certainly one of the biggest rock bands in the world. Uh, Their biggest song, Do I Want to Know, has about 1.4 billion streams. Uh, There's another song from that record, AM, uh, Why Do You Only Call Me When You're High, which is just below 1 billion. Uh, I think every track on that record has at least 100 million.
1: Except for Mad Sounds, it is about a million and a half away from hitting the nine digits.
0: So very big band tranquility bass was their curveball record but i don't think that really hurt them that much i'll be curious to hear uh how this new record comes out if, if they're going to be continuing that loungy satirical pop sound of tranquility bass or if they're going to get back to the more sort of muscle car bluesy big time rock sound of am um maybe it'll be somewhere in the middle there um you aren't into this band, right? I mean we've talked about Arctic Monkeys, I think, on this show, maybe for a little bit. But this is a band that uh gets under your skin in a negative way. Am, am I correct?
1: They I I'm just not
0: into them. I don't think they actively
1: annoy me the way some bands do. Like, I I can understand that if I were perhaps five years younger, like they, they might be what the strokes were to me in my real life. But then again, it's like the strokes are my strokes and I haven't really paid much attention to them since like 2006 or whatever. Anyway,
0: but like the millennial, uh, people (laughs) call them the millennial people. (laughs) Um, this does seem like a touchstone band for people of that generation. I would say, I mean, I'm a little bit older than you. I would say like people like at least 10 years younger than me. Look at them like you said, as The Strokes, although they might, I mean, if you're looking at their streaming numbers, they're bigger than The Strokes. Yes. Although, you know, some of that, I mean, I feel like a lot of that has to do with, like, people in the UK. Although, I mean, there's not that many people in the UK for them (laughs) to be streamed 1.4 billion times just because of their big audience there. Um, But, yeah, I mean, they do seem like, like one of the only rock bands, really, of that generation that has, like, really kind of, had a stronghold now for about 16 years
1: i would say that am like if it wasn't for am i don't know like how big they'd be because when you look at the streaming numbers for i mean for example 2011 suck it and see and humbug you know impressive but it's like 30 to 60 million streams a pop and AM is just so much bigger than everything they've made, uh, even including their debut, which is like, you know, one of those things that NME was calling like the greatest album of the 2000s like a month before it came out. But, you know, I think with this band, it's like, I, I just see them as, I don't, like we've talked about the Deftones <laughs> test on this show before. Like, it, you if can you tell if a band has ever had an uncool day in their life? Like, would they listen to Deftones? Uh, I think the Arctic Monkeys fail that miserably. Um, I think that they've just kind of, especially with AM, adopted this GQ kind of baby driver rock band uh, ideal, which you know doesn't resonate with me at all. And when they made their weird album, it was weird, but it was still like using very, very cool influences. So um, I don't know. Like, I mean, I don't mind them. I don't think they're a force for evil. And I sort of wish I liked them, but to me, they're just kind of along the same lines as like, say, Queens of the Stone Age or Foo Fighters.
0: See, but those bands aren't cool. And I I wonder how cool Arctic Monkeys are in England just Mm. because they are so popular and they're a mainstream rock band there. We need to get some mailbag on that. Because, you know, like I know like Oasis wasn't really a cool band during their height. They were a popular band, but they were like a band that like, the lads liked, so they wouldn't have, you know, they wouldn't have had the cachet of like a band like Pulp or something, who I would associate with with coolness more than I would Oasis. And I feel like Arctic Monkeys might have a similar rep in their home country. I could be totally wrong, but just because they're so popular, and I'm sure that like the hipsters in that country are sick of them by now, you know, and roll their eyes at, at Arctic Monkeys. In here, you know, they have a different – they might hit differently just because they're British, wearing the leather jackets. Alex Turner always has really cool-looking hair. So, you know, maybe they hit those annoying, cool notes for you because you're an American. I don't know. I uh, I, I want to hear from our British listeners on this. Like w- Like, what's the Arctic Monkeys rep in their home country?
1: I really appreciate that you brought up yeah he's got really cool hair and that I might dislike him because I'm American not because I don't have hair <laughs> <laughs> that, that,
0: that, that was awful kind of you but well, um, yeah we don't need we're not I'm not I'm not hitting below the bell here <laughs> on Arctic Mon- I mean because they're a band that I like I don't love Arctic monkeys but I like their work I like their catalog i i I really like the album am and maybe it's because that is. One of the only kind of true down the line rock albums that actually has like a real impact on music in the last decade. That is you know, absolutely like, true. Yeah, it's like one of the big mainstream rock records of modern times. So I think the the nostalgist in me who likes big time rock records is drawn to it partly for that. But I also think the tunes are good. You know, you mentioned Queens of the Stone Age. That's the record that Josh Homme produced. I believe mm-hmm. he produced the whole record. And it, yeah, it definitely has like a Queens. Of the stone age like veneer to it although that record's like way bigger than any queens of the stone age record you know weirdly enough so i don't know i, I it's like maybe alex turner needs to produce queens of the stone age i think he probably point. did th- i feel like he did maybe i'm wrong but i don't know there's, uh, there's definitely cross-pollination between those bands for sure in the last decade Although I think Queens of the Stone Age has had bigger problems at this point, yeah. <laughs> judging by like the tabloid stories about Josh Homme, I don't know what the status of that band is going to be going forward. At any rate, one thing I do know is that Capitol Records is getting out of the robot rapper business, at least temporarily. <laughs> Did you see this story? Like this, uh, this New York Times story about the uh, AI rapper. What's his name? FN. FN Mecca? FN Mika, um,
1: I've not heard the name said aloud. Um, what what a great transition from like Josh Omé's problematic nature to like a completely virtual problematic rapper. Yeah, uh,
0: problematic. Yeah, there's there's this problematic robot rapper, and if he gets canceled, this is like a this could be like a real cancel cancelization because he literally will not exist if he gets canceled. <laughs> so yeah, this is this could be like the first true cancelization in history. I just want to read from the lead of this story for those people who, are, who have no idea what we've been talking about for the last 60 seconds. This is from the New York Times. Capital Music Group, the company that houses major labels including Capital and Blue Note, said on Tuesday that it was severing ties with its latest controversial artist, FN Mika, a virtual, quote, robot rapper powered partly by artificial intelligence, who boasts more than 10 million followers on TikTok. The company had previously teased the project, the first augmented reality artist, to sign to a major label. Uh, augmented reality? I've yeah. never heard that term before. Uh, just say robot rapper. I think that is the best way to refer to this. Uh, to this, well, I was going to say this guy, but he's not a guy. He's just a, a digital creation. But anyway, uh, the company, they tease this as, quote, just a preview of what's to come. Yet, after growing backlash to what skeptical observers said amounted to digital blackface, including content that seemed to trivialize incarceration and police brutality, Capital said it had, quote, severed ties with the FN Mika project, effective immediately. Um, (laughs) When I read this story, I definitely had a Danny Glover and Lethal Weapon moment of, like, I'm getting too old for this shit. Like, I might have to retire from the music writing salt mines because this is like beyond satire. It like makes pop star never stop, never stopping look like the last waltz, you know, like you, I look at pop star now as like, wow, that's when things were like really earthy and, and uh, authentic, you know, cause now we're in this era. What do you make of this story? Like, do you understand even like what's going
1: on here? So uh, before we go any further, we like, Pop star never stop, never stopping. If you've never watched that movie. that is like permanent recommendation corner. like more <laughs> absolutely. People, like, I, I demand that all our listeners get familiar with that so we can reference it as much as possible. yeah, but.
0: it's it's that is like inexplicable that that is not a more commonly referenced text in modern music writing because <laughs> I feel like it's there's so many things in that movie that are applicable to like the world that we live in now.
1: So when I first read that story, like, I had heard whispers about it. It's like this kind of off-brand milkshake duck story where this thing came out, everyone fucking hated it for two weeks, and then it got canceled. Um, Yeah, and it just read, like, this seven-layer burrito of incomprehensible 2022 music industry jargon, like, what is an augmented reality rapper? Why did it happen? How and why does it get signed by Capitol Records and why did it get dropped? And yeah, I also think, you know what? I, I think I could I think I'm just gonna be a podcast listener from now on. Music, I've had a good run with it, but this is clearly like my exit stage left moment. And then I I just I made an honest attempt to look more into it, and I just love this story. It is so fucking fascinating because you said it's a mostly AI rapper but there's human beings and somewhat behind it one of them happens to be this guy named anthony martini who's a he's a he's that he's a white guy who fronts this new jersey rap core band called e-town concrete um and he compared it to say marshmallow and gorillas which you know what like that's that's a fair assessment and this is the best quote from anthony martini it's literally no different from managing a human artist except that it's digital. <laughs> so the, I mean, it's just like a human except it's not. Yeah. Except it's absolutely nothing at all <laughs> like a human. And you know what? Like I a part of me like really wants to get like cynical about this in the same, in the same way that there was this like Charlie XCX Roblox concert Creation of secondary content piece that Pitchfork ran that was getting re-roasted over the weekend, but you know what? Like, with 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 stuff like this, technology it moves ever forward. It never goes backwards. The parachute's out, and I just love—I I don't know—just as a person from the sidelines who just likes to watch uh, the music industry make complete asses on themselves. I just love when the cynicism is laid this bare. You know what I mean? Like. Yeah, we're just going to like skip past the part of artist development and just go, go into AI rap. Why the fuck not? You know, um, I just love how <laughs> it, it, I also love like kind of the optimist backlash to stuff like this where, you know, you think about the the quote secondary content creation of, you know, like fanfic made by Sync or One Direction fans. But oh, when when it's this stuff, this isn't real pop fandom. You know what I mean? It's very easy to just kind of get like cynical and say this is all you know Fiona Apple style the world's all bullshit, Um, and I, I I I like how you pointed out that this is like not the end of robot rappers but probably just a temporary hiccup and they'll fine tune it they'll. I wonder if there's gonna be like a like an AI backpack or conscious rapper, you know, like <laughs> a, like a, a like a AI rapper doing like third eye st- like style rhymes and like getting who's like really into sound bombing too. Like instead of like I guess um, like a Playboy Cardi type uh, AI robot,
0: like whether it's gonna be like a J Cole. Yeah, I mean, yeah, this is not the end of robot rappers. The only reason why this robot rapper was canceled was because it's a racist caricature not because it's a stupid idea that seems to go against like what music should be about i mean it's just the natural conclusion i think of the music industry just mindlessly chasing any tiktok trend you know because it's they think it's going to make them money which i you know i wonder if something like this like if you follow this robot rapper on TikTok, do you really want an album from the robot rapper or do you just like the TikTok? Like, I feel like the idea is to market to people who don't actually care about music because that's the majority of people. More <laughs> people care about video games, more people care about social media than will ever care about music. And yeah, I mean, I guess I get it. Like, you, you want to expand your customer base. And music fans, there's just not enough of them. So you have to reach out to these other people who couldn't care less about music, but they're into whatever the latest technology is, and they're going to gravitate to this kind of thing. You know, It's like when you watch the Super Bowl, and it's not for sports fans, it's, all, it's, it's for everyone else who doesn't like sports, and they're trying to sandwich all this other stuff in. And that to me, this seems like a bellwether of that that you know the music business is probably going to progress in a direction where like music becomes a small part of what they do and most of it will just be catering to this video game social media technological base of people out there that you want to appeal to because there's more of them out there
1: Yeah, I I think we just have to, like, rebrand IndieCast as, like, a podcast that hashes out trends of, like, the biggest loss leader of the entertainment industry.
0: Well, you know, I just wonder what happens to us when there's robot indie rock podcasters out there (laughs) who are really big on TikTok. I mean, that seems like it's going to happen sooner rather than later, and then you and I are going to be living under a bridge somewhere.
1: Uh, yeah, I'm just thinking of like the, uh, the, the <laughs> obviously like the Simpsons, uh, you know, the DJ 3000 like, look at those clowns in Congress. And except for the, it's like, it's us, except it's like, look at this Harry Styles interview. Um, look, I, I would love to hear an AI version of IndyCast. If you happen to be very it, like, I don't know, maybe Anthony Martini, maybe that's his latest pivot, you know, things didn't quite work out with FN Mecca, but You know, get into the podcasting game. God knows how much money's in that. You know, I'm just offering that pivot to you, Anthony Martini. Also, I just love the fact that that band is touring and playing Furnace Fest. So you could see Pedro the Lion do their do like a full on performance of Control and then see like the rap core band that invented the AI rapper. What a a festival.
0: Yeah, that that goes on our list of favorite festivals (laughs) uh, right away. All right, well, moving on from the Robot Rapper story, I want to talk about something that is a little old at this point. This broke the day that we recorded our previous episode last week. But I wanted to talk about it because it's something that pertains to this thing of ours, so to speak, (laughs) that we have been involved in for a long time. And it's about Rolling Stone announcing last week that on their website, they will not be having starred reviews any longer. And I don't know the precise history of this, But I know at the beginning of Rolling Stone, they didn't have star reviews. And I don't know if it was in the 70s or the 80s that stars started coming in, but it's been part of the magazine for a long time. But the magazine announced as part of a redesign of its website that they're not going to be doing starred reviews anymore. And I want to read from what they, they, they offer a brief explanation about it. They say, no more starred reviews for new music. If you're into pop culture in 2022... You're too sophisticated to let some arbitrary number guide your taste. Shots fired. So, yeah, I wonder, is that a little subtweet of uh, Pitchfork and some other places? It seems a little subtweety. That's not even subtweet. That's like
1: That's not like passive-aggressive. That's like aggressive-aggressive.
0: That's tapping the finger in the chest of the competitors right there. So we'll tell you right away when a new single is an instant classic or an album is an absolute must-hear. After that, our critics will help you... Make up your own damn mind. So most of the response I saw to this online was positive. You know, people were like, oh, right, that's great. No more stars on Rolling Stone reviews. And I wanted to ask you about this because, you know, most of my writing has been for places that don't have stars on reviews. And I have to say that as a writer, I prefer not to have a score on my review because, And I feel like this should be common knowledge, but for whatever reason, it's not. Like The writer does not assign the score to a review. Like If you're reading Rolling Stone or Pitchfork, the byline, that person didn't decide if it got four stars or an 8.5. That was the editor that decided that. And the reason why they assigned that particular writer to the piece is because the writer happens to agree with the official stance of the publication you know, they have the same opinion. So like they're casting writers based on how they feel about a record and how it coincides with how the masthead feels. So if you're a writer and you're doing that, you may still feel like, well, this album that got four stars, I would have given it three and a half stars. And now all these people are going to be demanding that you defend this score that you didn't even assign. Like my one, like the, the big example for me of when this happened, is I wrote a Sunday review for Pitchfork about Alien Lanes, the Guided by Voices album. And when I tweeted it out, I said, this is one of my favorite albums of all time. And the album got like a 9.5. And someone clapped back and they were like, how pretentious do you have to be to give your favorite album a (laughs) 9.5? And I was like, I would have given it... like a 26.0, okay? But I'm not assigning the score, okay? It's Pitchfork assigning it. And that's because they're preserving their voice. That's what the editors are there to do, to make sure that they don't just let writers go off half cocked, you know, because they don't represent the publication. It's the, the editors are the stewards of that. So, it, it makes sense. So, f- for writers, I think it's frustrating. For readers, however, and I want to get your opinion on this, I feel like readers, for the most part, like scores. They like it as a quick reference point. They basically like it for the reasons that writers hate it. Because (laughs) a score means you don't actually have to read the review. You can just look at the score and you can get a very quick sense of how this place feels about it. I mean, I think sometimes scores can suck you into the review. Like if an album that you don't maybe particularly care about gets like a 1.3, you're like, oh, I want to read this. (laughs) This is going to be a pan. Or if it gets like a 9.8, you're like, wow, they must really love this. I want to read this review. But for the most part, I think it discourages people from reading, which again is why writers don't like it. But for, re- for readers, even when they complain about the scores, they gravitate to them. So I wonder like if the average Rolling Stone reader will appreciate this. I don't know. Like, what do you think about that?
1: Well, I mean first off we just got to point out that uh Al- the Alien Lanes
0: review is a 9.2. Oh, Okay. Well, yes. <laughs> I, I still would have I would have given it a 26.0, but Pitchfork doesn't give out 26.0s. Not yet. Uh, Not yet. (laughs) Um, Yeah,
1: when I I first heard about, like, I thought about this yesterday when, like, Joe Biden made the announcement of, like, having some student loans canceled and, like, all these people who dutifully paid off their loans complained about, like, how come I had to suffer. I'm just, like, thinking that, like, you know, maybe the other members of, like, Blind Melon are thinking like where was this nope stars when soup came out you know like (laughs) like all these bands that got like infamously like 1.5 or one star uh you know like all of a sudden like trying to like these whippersnappers these days and like look um i get it again like we talked in previous episodes i think about like how reviews in Rolling Stone have been, like, subjected really, really, really to the back. Like, the last Arcade Fire album got, like, a capsule review. And, I mean, I get it. Like, as a writer, I would like for people to, you know, engage with the text that I uh, so that I worked on for, for so many hours, as opposed to like a score that just almost arbitrarily got slapped on there. But at the same time, I'd like them to read it to begin with. And I think the score, you know, (laughs) ensures like some level of engagement that just a block of text would not, unless you just so happen to be a big fan of like my work, or you care a lot about the band that I'm writing about. Um, if there's anything that, I guess across the board kind of annoys me with music writing. It's when, like, look, we're both lifers. We've made, we've, you know, you know, like, we've supported our families off this shit. And yet, if the the thing that annoys me across the board is when music writers think of our work as, like, some sort of higher serious calling, you know? Like, I think that this removal of the stars, uh... Gambit makes me think that like no music reviews are this like sacred text that like they should not be limited by whether it's like the old spin stoplight system or stars or grades or like the vice, you know, making smiley or frowny face type of thing. And I mean, I think that the maybe this is just like kind of putting like a moral spin on what is inevitable anyway, which is that reviews are getting like phased out. So Um, I don't know. It allows people to have it both ways. Again, I'm sure writers think this is an incredibly bold move. I would just love to know what readers think because by and large, I think they see our reviews as like a version of consumer reports.
0: Yeah, or I I mean, I just think it's fun. You know, it's fun to argue about scores. I mean, people are just drawn to it. It's the same reason why lists do really well. There's, there's just something about it that it engages people. And I think if you're if, if you're also delivering great writing, I don't see a problem with that. I mean, what this reminds me of is how during year-end list season, you're seeing more and more places do unranked lists. which I think is totally fine, I don't think you need to rank a list. If you just want to have a list that's in alphabetical order or however else you want to organize it, I think that's great. But I do feel like sometimes there's this idea that it's like more moral or something to like not rank your year-end list. And it's like, you made a list, you've already ranked albums. Even if the albums on your list are in alphabetical order, you've still pulled out these 10, 20, 50 albums out of all the albums that were released in a year and said, these are the best. So you are ranking those albums ahead of every other album that, came out in a particular year. So, to say then like, well, it's wrong to put a number next to an album on this list, I don't know. Look, I'm not going to go to the mats to like defend rankings things, but I don't think it's wrong to rank or to unrank. I I just think it's a fun way to package music writing and you're just trying to get people in the door. Like you said, if you just present a block of text even if the writing is great, it's hard to engage people with that online. But if you can give them like a little stupid score on something, that gets them in the door and then they read it. And I think you need to do things like that sometimes to engage readers. I, it's just something, it's like a Pavlovian thing that people respond to.
1: I think the most important thing about writing a review is that when you do it, the check that they send you clears. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, I'm going to rank my uh, top 50 checks I've gotten uh, yeah. in my music writing career. Top
1: 50 publications of like which places pay you the fastest and the most reliably.
0: <laughs> the top 10 places that do direct deposit. Uh, <laughs> you know, we'll do that list uh next week on Indycast. Um, our last topic today and I'm going to tread lightly here because this relates to vinyl snobbery. And this is something that I have railed against in previous episodes, and I feel like I've alienated some listeners by doing this because I know we have a lot of people out there that like to listen to vinyl. And again, hats off to you. Do what you love to do. I'm glad that you enjoy your vinyl collections. Um, Although if you get overly precious about vinyl, I might have something to say about that. But uh, I don't know if you've been following this, but there's that uh, reissue label. Uh, Mobile Fidelity Sound Lab, also known as MoFi. Isn't that an Arctic Monkeys album? <laughs> could be. Uh, I first heard about this story a couple weeks ago. The Washington Post did a piece about how it was discovered that this reissue label, they put out expensive uh, reissues of, of classic albums on vinyl, and they advertised it as being all analog. But in reality, they've been using what's known as DSD technology, also known as direct stream digital technology, basically the same kind of technology that they use to make CDs. They're using this (laughs) uh, for these very expensive vinyl reissues uh, that they're advertising as all analog. And this week there was a class action lawsuit brought against the label from a customer named Adam Stiles, he lives in Charlotte, North Carolina. I wonder if he's an indiecast listener. Yeah,
1: that, Adam from Charlotte, North Carolina—that that totally is an indiecast mailbag name.
0: Uh, and I'm reading here as uh, from the Pitchfork story, the lawsuit specific anecdote is a February 2022 purchase of the Pretenders' self-titled debut album, which cost him $40, and uh, was advertised as an original master recording designation. And this is from the lawsuit. Had Mr. Styles been aware that the record used digital remastering or DST technology, he would not have purchased the record or would have paid significantly less for it. So this guy paid $40 for what he thought was an all analog record. And he could have basically bought a UCD copy of this album for like <laughs> $2.99 uh, from eBay and gotten the same product, essentially uh, just at a smaller package. Um, Again, I'm going to tread lightly here. I don't want to be disrespectful to the vinyl fans out there. I know you've invested a lot of time and money in your collections. And I would be upset too if I bought an expensive record that I thought was all analog. And then I found out that it had, you know, it was using this digital remastering technology. But there is something kind of funny to me about annoying, like the Steve Hoffman music board type person (laughs) who obsesses over this kind of thing. I mean, it does show how a lot of this stuff seems like a total farce. If you are,
1: to the IndieCast listener, I I, I want to make sure you take some time as we have this discussion. Google Steve Hoffman and, (laughs) okay, no, before you Google Steve Hoffman, just imagine like what you think a real vinyl audio engineering snob looks like. Just imagine that in your head and Google Steve Hoffman and look at the first Google image that pops up. It is such a, it's at vintagerock.com i want to make sure you look at that one i would say like put press pause do that and resume with us as we continue this discussion He uh, might be an ai of a vinyl <laughs> snap, cuz it's a little too perfect
0: <laughs>
1: he's the fm mecca of audio engineers um yeah it, you know it's, it, this in a weird way like this controversy seemed more impenetrable to me than the FM Mecca thing because, um, you know, I kind of understand digital avatars. I do understand, like, hip-hop. I do understand why it's problematic. But, um you know, this technology, it always moves forward. And, you know, as, as we said before, and the idea that, like, vinyl is somehow more authentic, you know, regardless of like what era music was recorded in always seemed like kind of bullshit to me. Like I used to think of like these people who are trying to buy like 50 cent, get rich or die trying on vinyl, like even though it was made at the height of the CD era. And what I, this also makes me think of like, you know, whenever you hear about like this cryptocurrency, just completely tanking how you do feel bad in some way for, like, these people who lost a lot of money. And at the same time, it's like, ah, they probably shouldn't have been there in the first place. You know, like, you're investing in something that, like, I personally think is bullshit, so I'm not going to feel as much sympathy for you. But I think if there's any upshot of this, and I think you touched on this, doesn't this potentially bring us to a point where CDs are seen as the superior... Uh, audio uh, replication than
0: vinyl. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm a CD guy, so I'm going to go to math for CDs. I mean, I understand collecting vinyl records, going to old record shops, and maybe you find an original pressing of the first Pretenders record, and it costs $10, and you buy that. I think that's cool. What annoys me more and more is this business now where records just cost way too much money. And it mm-hmm. does seem like a scam at some point that instead of going to the store and buying like the original vinyl record from like 40 years ago, you're going to buy this expensive reissue and it somehow justifies its value because of how it was remastered. I don't know. To me, it does speak to, you know, if, if you want to say like, I like vinyl records as an aesthetic object. They look cool. I like how they look on my shelf. I like holding it in my hand. I like putting a a record on the turntable and sitting in a chair. And 20 minutes later, you get up, you turn it over because it's a nice experience for listening. I get all that stuff. I just feel like this kind of thing, it shows that there is exploitation, I think, in this world. And um, it feels like maybe this could be a turning point in rolling some of that back. You know, to a place where vinyl collecting, I think it's a little less decadent, because you know, I feel <laughs> like we're in the decadent hair metal late <laughs> '80s phase of vinyl, like where there's just like too much money and like too much self-indulgence going on, and there needs to you know, there needs to be like the nevermind" needs to come out and clear <laughs> the decks, you know, a little bit. And maybe this is, maybe this lawsuit is like Nirvana putting out "Nevermind. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. I mean, uh,
1: uh, yeah, I, I think you make a, a, a salient point about like if you like vinyl, you know, just say it's because it looks bigger. You can put it on your shelves. Like I think about, I, I just think about this advertisement that seems to pop up eighty percent of the time when I watch something on YouTube, where it's this uh, for this whiskey, and it's like, you know, that sound of an old vinyl. That's what this is like, and they're playing like some like old blues song or probably some black key song. And that, that, it, that just annoys me so much that, like, this idea that, like, the older version of something is somehow, like, more authentic, like, as if you, if you didn't go, you know, present Led Zeppelin in 1970 with, like, digital recording technology, how they would not be all over that shit, you know? Um, look, eh, I don't know what's going to come of this. Maybe... I'll get like a class action suit check in the mail, like I did when like Kaplan got sued by you know like a cl- with a class action. But either way, if like CDs come back, like I can't guarantee I'll spend eighteen dollars on it, but I'll at least appreciate it a bit more. You know, like I'll go to the record store and maybe see a pull quote from one of my reviews on the sticker. That would be cool. I
0: miss those days. See, and CDs aren't going to cost eighteen dollars, and they well, I, if they become collectible, <laughs> I guess they could be, but. Really, CDs are in that era of buying the Kaiser Chiefs album at Best Buy for $7.99. <laughs> like that's what a lot of CDs cost now. It's like it's a great era for CD fans. In a way, I don't want CDs to become too popular because then they're gonna be doing, you know, super digital reissues of albums that cost fifty dollars like for one CD. And I don't want that to happen. The I want them to tour be a variant with like the the you know, the
1: swirl, the different designs. I don't need that shit.
0: Yeah, keep CDs disreputable and cheap. That is my hope. (laughs) Now, reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? So, this past weekend, on
1: Friday and Saturday, I believe, Me Without You, a long running legendary band from Philadelphia, played their final shows. Um, they've been around for 20 years. Their first album came out in 20, uh, 2002. I think it's fair to say they're done. They've been doing like farewell tours, you know, celebrations of their album for the past couple of years, interrupted by the pandemic and such. And um, it was really cool to see the celebration of this band over the weekend. Uh, I think something along the lines of like 50 to 75% of the bands that I talk about in Recommendation Corner have been influenced in some way by this act. Uh, Haley Williams from Powermore called them like the most important band of her lifetime. A lot of dispute. The world is a beautiful place. Uh, just countless bands spawned from this. And, um, you know, even. I feel bad that I kind of missed their peak. Um, both Steve and I mentioned this in our respective Manchester Orchestra profiles about like how Manchester Orchestra opened for Me Without You in two thousand seven, and they played the same venue as Fiery Furnaces, who were like this you know indie darling, and they outdrew them by like ten times, even though no one was talking about them. I was like purely pitchfork pilled at that time i'm not listening to a band on tooth and nail and i'm a little sad that i like i was not in a space where i could appreciate their uh you know when they were really starting to come up in the 2000s uh that being said their most recent records including 2015's pale horses uh 2018's untitled and the ep that went along with it both were released on run for cover produced by will Yip. uh even if you're not the type of person who like tattoos the lyrics of this band on your arm. I think you could still appreciate their later work. Uh, it holds this space of between REM and Fugazi, like in a way that you've talked about the Constantines in the past. Um, and, and also like the Decemberists with like the really elusive uh, referential lyrics. This is a band that I think, you know, I can feel comfortable uh, recommending to Steve because we've talked in past episodes about how we like to encounter bands with like deep catalogs after their peak and just really explore it. I mean, I don't know what the fuck Aaron Weiss is talking about half the time, but the lyrics are just super interesting and it just makes me wonder if there's going to be a similar sort of band that comes along um, that grows that organically and is that powerful um
0: just a real end of an era so yeah i'm definitely i'm gonna dig into that band this is a band that i've been aware of for a long time but i've and i've dabbled in their their catalog a little bit but you know i'm sad to see them go i'm sure their fans are sad to see them go but there is something fun about digging into a catalog that has a cap on it you know it's like okay this (laughs) is like a body of work now now i'm gonna dive into it and see what's good and what what doesn't work uh Definitely plan on doing that with that band. Uh, My recommendation this week, I'm going to do a self-interested recommendation. I want to talk about a profile that I published on Uproxx this week of the very hyped and beloved indie musician, Bartiz Strange. Uh, Earlier this month, I went to Salt Lake City, Utah, to see him play a show with The National during a five-show run that he was doing, opening up for The National uh, in Canada and the Western United States. And I write about this in my profile in the intro that the premise of this was that Barty Strange has been one of the most written about artists uh, of 2022. I, I think you did a piece on him. I did. New York Times, uh, you know, Rolling Stone, NPR, all down the line have talked about him. But how do you do in the middle of Utah when you're an <laughs> indie artist and you're trying to get fans into you? It seemed like, okay, if I want to gauge – where he's at right now this is a good place to go because this is in the middle of the weird wild west and if you've never been to utah this is my first time going very unique place i ended up writing quite a bit about salt lake city in my uh in my article i don't want to give too much away but you know along with all the mormon stuff this is a place where they put pastrami on your cheeseburgers uh it's where the high school musical films were filmed uh it has a surprisingly vibrant uh, mexican restaurant scene which you would not expect um and i don't know it, it was it's a very unique place and it was fun to um talk to bartiz in that setting and just to see how that show went there's also a bit about the national in my piece i talked to bryce desner about the new album that they're working on he was actually at an airbnb with the other members of The National before the show working on the record. Uh, That's why he wasn't backstage. I was supposed to talk to him backstage. Um, They put out a single this week with Justin Vernon of uh, Bonnie Bear called Weird Goodbyes, which has been one of the songs that they've been playing on stage during this tour. There's about four or five others that they've been playing. Um, And it's interesting because live, the songs are very guitar-heavy. And yet the single that they put out this week seems more in line with their last couple records. So I'll be interested to see how this album evolves. Of course, I'm excited for them to make a more guitar-oriented record again, and those songs sounded great live. And Bryce said that they were recording their shows and incorporating some of those live recordings into the record. So I don't know. I'm, I'm curious to see what that's like. Weird Goodbyes, the single that they put out, doesn't really reflect that but maybe the rest of the record does at any rate i wrote this long this is a long profile it's about forty-four hundred words but i think it's pretty interesting i think you should check it out it's at uprocks.com uh so yeah please read that if you can uh we've now reached the end of our episode thank you so much for listening we'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week and if you're looking for more music recommendations sign up for the indie mixtape newsletter you can go to uprocks.com backslash indie and i recommend five albums per week and we'll send it directly to your email box